0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, And tonight we're going to be talking, um, we're going to be talking a lot about about prophecy tonight because that's what Paul addresses in this passage. And this this section we're going to deal with tonight is really the heart of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul identifies the purpose in writing the letter and it, it focuses on some errors in their thinking regarding the the return of Christ the the rapture the coming the second coming of Christ and, and and in the same way that was it was also a central issue in the first epistle of the Thessalonians it is here as well so the the passage t- that's before us tonight second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is without question in my mind one of the most difficult in all of Paul's writings and it, it's given rise to more Speculative and diverse interpretations than maybe any other section of, of of the letters that Paul wrote, and the main reason for this is that he writes this letter to reinforce some things that he already taught them, and and so. But we don't know what he already taught them. So, how many of you have ever been in a room where you were trying to figure out what what the conversation was, but you were only hearing one one part of a telephone conversation? That's what it's like tonight. We're only hearing a, a one part of the conversation. We don't know everything that was said. We don't know everything that, that he taught before this. He was reminding them of saying, you know what I already taught you. Well, that puts us in a position where we're at a disadvantage in understanding everything that he's teaching in this passage. Now, there are some clues. There are some things that we can learn from other passages of scripture that will help shed some, some light on this. But, but it seems that some of the Thessalonian believers had had uh, latched on some wrong teaching regarding Christ's second coming and, and what would happen when he came and what would happen before he returned. And, and as I said, Paul had already taught uh, the believers in Thessalonica uh, w- when he was with them. he And then he had explained uh, some of this more in the first uh, th- uh, letter to the Thessalonians. But this letter tonight, what we're going to be looking at in this section, it talks about a time of great rebellion against God led by a man of lawlessness and that is that we're going to discover that is the antichrist that he's talking about and we he's going to talk about the fact that God will will remove all the restraints on evil uh before he bring, begins his final judgment so with all that said when we well, when we are looking at prophecy one of the things that I think we we forget there are specific purposes in prophecy when God gives prophecy in scripture, there's a reason behind it. And it's not so that we'll know, we can, you know, make a chart to figure out what the end time events are. There, there are different reasons. For example, one reason might be because then it helps, uh, helps us to, uh, have, have confidence in His deity. Because when He says something, then it happens, then we, it helps reinforce our faith. But also, I think there's a part, there's a big part of prophecy, a big purpose in prophecy that is really important that sometimes it's a little overlooked. And that is that prophecy is often intended to give us encouragement and comfort and strength in the now. Because uh, the, the thing about prophecy is that it tells us in the end, God wins. And, and that's really the ultimate purpose of it, so that God can say, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. You're going to have trial, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have suffering, you're going to have all these things. But in the end, I want you to understand this is what takes place. And so so there's there, there there's a, a lot of encouragement that's found in that process. And so it's important to remember that Paul, while he's writing this letter, he is really not interested in satisfying our eschatological whims and, you know, in our our curiosity about the end times, he's much more concerned with bringing the Thessalonians comfort and encouragement in the midst of their suffering. Because for the Thessalonians, and this is true for us as well, for them to face their future without fear, they needed to be anchored in the unshakable foundation of God's truth and knowing that God is going to see them through. So with that said, let's begin reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So the, the, the subject of the second coming of Christ had become a source of tension and disruption in the church there. Paul's first letter had answered questions regarding believers who had died before Jesus' return because they they thought maybe they had missed out on heaven that they weren't going to be part of the the plan but and then another concern in the first chap first letter that Paul addressed was that uh, that in the in the while they were living in expectation of Christ's return that was causing some if you remember to stop working and they just quit what they were doing and said well let's just wait and not do anything and in Paul's first letter, he explained that Jesus would come suddenly and that the believers who had already died would rise out of their graves and meet him in the air while those uh, on earth that were still alive would be caught up in the clouds to meet them, meet the Lord in the air. And, and the Bible says that we would be with him forever after that. So in chapter two, verse one, Paul returns to this, to this, uh, some of these end time themes. And he speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus and the gathering of believers to himself. Now, I believe that what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about end times, but he's really referring to two separate events in this passage. The gathering of the saints is what we would call the rapture of the church. And, 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 and then the second coming of Christ, sometimes we confuse the two. The second coming of Christ is not the rapture of the church. The second coming of Christ is when he comes to actually set up his kingdom and to judge all evil. So think of it like this: the rapture is Jesus coming for his own, but the second coming is Jesus coming with his own. Because at the rapture he brings the church, and then when you read in the Re- in Book of Revelation, the armies of God come with him, and so everything indicates that the that those who are raptured will come back to the earth with him, and and uh, and this. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. I started to go someplace, but I thought I don't, I don't have time for that. So <clears throat> Paul says that he doesn't want the Thessalonian believers to become easily unsettled or alarmed. That's how the NIV translates it because of some of the false teaching or prophecy or whatever it might be regarding the end time events. An actual a little, more literal translation of that phrase would be that you not be quickly disturbed or shaken out of your mind. So it's, it's much, or as F.F. Bruce puts it, shaken out of your wits. So you can sense it, there's, the NIV translates it in a way that's very readable for us, but it kind of loses a little bit of the urgency when we read it because he's talking about being disturbed and shaken out of your mind. So it helps us realize the seriousness of the situation. And Paul's concern in this is, is that the change in their understanding of the day of the Lord seems to that change seems to have happened very very quickly and so uh, and and that change was destroying their peace and their confidence in the lord you know here's the thing about prophecy even today people often get all bent out of shape and they get all worried when talking about prophecy you know it we've we've all seen it people build giant charts to try to pinpoint when in time events are going to happen and they get all caught up in trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if you were old enough to remember back in 1988, the guy put out the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And then Jesus didn't come back. So he put out in 1989 another book called, guess it, guess what? 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. We, we get caught up on these things. People get confused about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and all these things. But we, we need to remember The the principle that we're already already kind of alluded to that when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to end time events, when the Bible talks about that eschatology, which if you don't know, that's just a big, you know, $10 word for end time study of end times. The prophecy study of prophecy eschatology is not intended to help us create a timeline to the end of the world as we know it. That's not what it is. there for. it's not there to help us know well this will happen then and then this and then this that's not what it's about more importantly it what prophecy is there for it reminds us that god is still in control and that, and that he doesn't work on our timeline see because without the prophecy when some bad things start happen we could easily get shaken we could we could start saying man i don't know this world's going crazy i don't know what's going to happen maybe it seems like evil is winning but because we're already told in Scripture that in the end times that, that wickedness will increase. Okay, well, we know that's coming now. So we're not caught off guard by that. So, so let's make sure that our our priority in tonight's study is to keep that in mind, that we're we're going to talk about a number of specifics that Paul gives us. But our goal tonight is not to try to lay out a timeline of all future events leading up to Christ's return, our goal is to remember that these events will happen and that Jesus wins in the end. And, and our goal is to give us confidence and peace as we walk through this world because we know that Jesus reigns now and Jesus will reign forever. So verse 2, he mentions there, he talks about a, a, a supposedly a, a prophecy or uh, he talks about one of the false teachings about Christ's second coming that had taken hold. Um, and and there were some who were saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, if you remember, I don't have time to go through this, but a a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about, uh, I don't even know how many weeks ago, but we talked about the day of the Lord and what that means. That's, that's the time of God's judgment and really referring to what a big part of that is referring to what we would call the tribulation period, right? Uh, after the rapture of the church, but, but this false teaching was going around saying, that the day of the Lord had already come, that they had missed it. And so these false teachers were saying that judgment day had already come. Perhaps it, you know it, it, it was in a, in a letter falsely attributed to Paul because he said, even if you get a letter that's supposedly from me, uh, or, or maybe somebody had given some prophecy in the church or a sermon had been preached that, 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 that taught that God's kingdom had already arrived. Well, well Paul now, he doesn't identify the source, so he doesn't tell us where all of this bad teaching has come from. Uh, so, so we don't know that, but we know it was there. And so this, this caused many believers to wait expectantly for vindication and relief from suffering. Because if I know from if Paul has taught me that that Jesus is coming again, and then when he comes again, he's going to judge the wicked and then we will have eternal, we'll have peace and live to, uh, you know, in peace with the Lord forevermore after that. Well, if, if I'm being taught that the judgment day has come, that the, that Jesus has returned, the day of the Lord has arrived, well, what am I going to be waiting for? I'm going to be waiting for the judgment of God on wicked and I'm going to be waiting for, for relief from my pain and suffering. But, but they got really confused because Their suffering not only continued, but it intensified. And so they were becoming very unsettled, very alarmed, thinking maybe that they had missed something. Maybe they were not where they needed to be. But but Paul simply wrote to them that the day of the Lord had not yet come. And then he gives them three specific other events that have to happen before the second coming of Christ. This is not about the rapture. Remember, this is at the end of the tribulation period. This is when Jesus comes back. These things have to happen before he sets up his kingdom. One, he tells us in verse three that the the rebellion, its the great rebellion must occur, he says. The second thing also in verse three, he says, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And then verse seven, it says that the restraint uh, of lawlessness must be removed. So we're going to look at those things tonight. And uh, we maybe have to move quickly on some things. But so uh, I'll talk fast and you listen fast. Just so fast in your seatbelt. Let's look at verse three as, we, we're, as, as it talks about the, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. He said he wrote this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Now, I will say this as we read this. I'm not going to refer to this again, but you'll, if you'll pay attention, you'll see Paul has a pattern here in this passage. Of he'll talk about future event and then bring back to present reality, future event back to the present, future and back to the present. So uh, if you'll you'll see him jumping around just a little bit on some of these things, but there are certain events that will precede the second coming of Christ to set up His kingdom here on his, on the earth, and the first is a great rebellion will occur. Now, the, the word translated rebellion in the Greek is apostasia, and that's where we get our, our English word apostasy from. Now, we often, it's actually a, a military term that suggests the abandoning of a position, and when used within the context of the church, it points to abandoning or departing from the faith. So when you talk about apostasy in the church, that's where somebody has moved away from from the gospel and what the Bible teaches and they're teaching false teachings that, and they abandon the faith. But here, the, the word, when Paul uses this word, he's probably not referring to a great, uh, you know, there's other places the Bible talks about a great falling away and that sort of thing. That's probably not what he's talking about here because the, in the context here, he seems to be referring to unbelievers and you'll see that, that that's what he seems to focus on this whole, in this whole passage. So he likely refers to unbelievers who will embrace the deception of the man of lawlessness. And, and, and this rebellion will be a massive revolt against God. And that's what sin ultimately is. It is rebellion against God. And so while, while rebellion against God seems widespread today, and we, we know it is, and it's getting worse and worse, as the coming of Christ draws near, The 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 active opposition to God will continue to intensify. Uh, People who are have have turned their hearts against God will become more and more hardened and more and more uh, active in their in their opposition. So so that's the second first thing is a great rebellion will occur. Second, and is that during the rebellion, a For lack of a better word, a remarkable man, I don't mean that in a good way, but he's a very unusual man, will come into public view. And he will have considerable power from Satan and he will personify evil. Now, while we know that there is a historical, uh, a future historical figure, that sounds uh, funny, but what I just mean, it'll be a real person in the future, that one day we'll burst onto the onto the scene. We also acknowledge, as Paul talked about in the in First Thessalonians, that the spirit of the antichrist is already here. Actually, that might we might have talked about that when we were going through First John. I think is when we talked about that. Uh, and so we know that the spirit of the antichrist is already here. The lawless the lawless man may be coming. We know he is coming, but lawlessness is already here. That's the whole idea of the spirit of Antichrist. The the one who opposes Christ in the future in the book of Revelation is coming. But we all know there are people who oppose Christ that are already here. That's the idea behind this, the spirit of the Antichrist. And so uh, and the thing about the whole Antichrist thing is throughout history, certain individuals have epitomized evil and they've been hostile to everything Christ stands for. And we have had a long history in the church of trying to Figure out who the Antichrist is, haven't we? Uh, Certain Roman uh, emperors fell into that category. People people said, well, they're opposed to everything. I think that's the Antichrist. And then uh, you may not know this, but in the original King James Bible, in the original version of the Bible, uh, in the preface, not in the scripture itself, but in the preface that they wrote at the beginning of it, they named the Pope as the, the man of sin, as the man of lawlessness. Um, uh, Hitler and Stalin have both been named as, as the Antichrist in the past. Uh, some of you will remember this one, and I always thought it was kind of funny, but there were some just, you know, 40 years ago that were proclaiming that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. I'm, um, some of you are already shocked by that, but, but there were some out there. Uh, back in the day, Napoleon Bonaparte was declared and thought to be the Antichrist by some. So these Antichrists, now they were part of the spirit of Antichrist and they have lived in every generation and others like them will continue to work their evil. And, and, and so uh, the, the spirit of Antichrist has been active since the birth of Christ. I mean, you see it right there with King Herod when he hears about the king of the Jews being born, you see the spirit of Antichrist already at work because what did he do? He sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to to murder any male child two years older or, or younger. That That's the spirit of Antichrist, opposing Christ, trying to wipe him out and wipe out his work in the world. So now, now, what we have to remember is it is it is dangerous for us to try to label any person or group or anything else as Antichrist as being the Antichrist and then try to predict the timing of Christ's return based on that assumption. Um, in fact, I, b- I believe it's very possible that we in the church may not know the identity of the man of lawlessness at all because we, as the church, will be taken away from this church during the time of his ascension into power. We, we may see him, we may, he may start to rise to power, we may, we may have our suspicions, but, but, you know, we may not know. But here's what we've got to remember. Our task as the church is not to identify the antichrist that's that's not our goal our task is to be prepared for christ's return and then and to spread the gospel so that as many people as possible can be prepared for christ's return so the the fact is though satan is always working against jesus christ and the work of the kingdom uh and and but but here's something to think about and you can take this or leave this I'm not going to say this is a hardcore theology or anything, but uh, I believe that Satan has been actively working. He's been prepared. He's been working against him, uh, working against God and working against Christ. But think about this. Sometimes I think, first of all, we'll say this. Sometimes we give Satan way too much credit. You know, we think we treat him as if his as if he's, you know, omnipresent and he's not. He's not everywhere at once. Um, you know, when we say, well, Satan's attacking me. Well, it's probably not Satan himself, but it's one of his demons that's attacking you. But, but we use the word Satan. Satan just literally means adversary or enemy. So you say the enemy's attacking me. That, that's, there's nothing wrong with saying that, but, but we give him too much credit. But, but the point I want to make about this, is that we, you and I do not know when Christ is returning. Neither does Satan. He, he doesn't know. But he is certainly prepared at any moment for, for any opportunity he gets to try to overthrow the rule of God in creation. So I believe in a way that every generation, some of these men that we've listed may have been his candidate to take over the world. But, but, but in that generation, but that wasn't the generation in which Christ returned. You know, I mean, so who knows? I, and it's just I know that's kind of weird and maybe out there to you. But but who knows? But if if Christ had returned uh, during World War II, who knows? But but what Hitler may have become the Antichrist. You know, does that make any sense at all? Anybody that 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 Satan through the ages, he doesn't know when Jesus is returning. So he's got somebody every generation ready to go ready to, to take any opportunity he gets to try to overthrow the rule of God. And, and if that's true, I think something that is striking to me is that it, 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 it seems odd, then, if that's true, that Satan may be more prepared for the return of Christ than many Christians are. But that's a whole, now I've gone to meddling. But we know before Christ's second coming to set up his kingdom on the earth, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, uh, a completely evil man will arise and he will be Satan's tool equipped with Satan's power. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, but this lawless man, man, as we've already made clear, will be not just an Antichrist. He won't be just Antichrist. He will be what we call the Antichrist. He will be in the world, but then he will rise to power and notoriety shown by the word, word revealed and the book of Revelation speaks of a beast. If you read about the beast in the book of Revelation, that symbolizes the Antichrist. So let me read some of these. We're going to skip around. We're going to read several passages from Revelation tonight and Daniel as well. But Revelation 13, 5 through 8. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Which you, you want to do the math? That's three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So, the beast symbolizes the antichrist. It's not Satan himself, but it's the antichrist who is someone who is under Satan's power and control. And if you want to, we're not going to read it, but you can look at Revelation 16, 13. And, and there you can see that the beast and the Antichrist is is like the second member of the false trinity. And so, it's, but we're, we don't have time to get into all of that. But, but Satan's evil will culminate in a final Antichrist, a man who will focus all the powers of evil against Jesus Christ and his followers. That's what we just read about. So what does he do? What are the activities of this man of lawlessness? Look at, at 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the, the spirit of Antichrist uh, that, that, is, that is characteristic in the present age, when we've talked about that, that, the the Antichrist is not here, but there are people who are Antichrist here. So the spirit of Antichrist that is characteristic of the present age, listen, it will pale in comparison to this coming man of lawlessness. the The Book of Revelation and what we see here, the Book of Revelation prophesies that all the people who belong to this world will worship the beast, in in, in except for those as as it says here, as we read in Revelation thirteen, except for those uh, uh, who's uh uh. whose names have been written in the the Lamb's book of life. Now, in order to be worshipped, this man of lawlessness will oppose, as Paul says here, oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that means it's not just the true God, but any false gods in the world, any false religion, any religion at all, he's going to say, no, all that's false. It's me. But he's going to exalt himself over God everything that is called God and, and everything that is worshipped. And he will then demand worship and he'll demand obedience to himself alone. And in the ultimate act of defiance against God, he says that he will sit in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. That act, and you, you'll, you'll see this in other places, particularly in some of the older English translations, that act is what is known biblically as the abomination of, of desolation which is a lot of these big words uh, but but we know abomination is a is a is if you were to rank sins it's like top of the list and abomination is the worst sin of sins desolation what is that that is when everything is abandoned okay so let's let's read about these things and we'll put some of these things together daniel 9 27 talks about this thing Says he will con, con, uh, confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now, when you talk about the book of Daniel, he talks about a, 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 a different groups of seven. When he talks about seven, that's a group of seven years. So he will confirm a covenant for many with one seven. And in the middle of the seven, that's three and a half years. How, remember, remember we read in Revelation that he was going to be, be given power for how long? Three and a half years. So in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. Mark 13, 14, Jesus said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. So he's referring back to Daniel. When you see this standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to set himself up as, as the God. He will, he will blaspheme the temple uh, of God and say, I'm going to sit in the temple because I des- I, des- I uh, deserve to be worshiped. I demand to be worshiped. And that is going to be an abomination for that man to claim to be God. And it's going to cause desolation. We'll talk about what, what, And what that means in just a minute so the description of the man of lawlessness is 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 actually very similar to uh, a man called antiochus epiphanes and he is talked about in the book of daniel in chapter 11 this is what it says the king will do as he pleases he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his forefathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. So that is actually talking about one specific historical event when a man named Antiochus Epiphanes was responsible for what we would say is the first abomination of desolation. And that is that in the year 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig to the to the god Zeus on the the sacred temple altar, and that was an abominable act that caused the temple to be abandoned. When it's abandoned, what is that? That means it is left desolate. So, an abomination that causes desolation is is a horrible act of sin that that desecrates the temple of God and causes it to be unusable, so it's abandoned. Okay. The second fulfillment of of this prophecy. Here's what we need to understand about prophecy: is that uh, if you've ever if you've ever driven to the mountains, one of the things that you'll know is that as you're pulling up, as you're driving into the mountains, you'll see. Mountains, right? Not not a big shock, right? But as you get over the, uh, get to the top of one mountain, what happens? You suddenly see other mountains that you couldn't see before. Then you keep going and you get past that mountain and all of a sudden now you can see other mountains that you couldn't see before. That's a lot like what prophecy is like. Is that often there are multiple instances of that prophecy being fulfilled in different ways but they all point directly to a specific ultimate fulfillment. So this is what's happening here, because there is another time when that happened, that that prophecy was fulfilled. That occurred when Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple came true, when in AD 70, the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem, and in the process, they desecrated the temple. And what we know from Scripture is that a third fulfillment is yet to come. Because we know that the Antichrist in the final rebellion against God is going to set himself up as God and he's going to desecrate the temple by declaring himself God in the temple. And, uh, and so now you say, well, there's no temple. Well, you know, that just means, and, there, and there's always rumors about this, that just means that the temple will be rebuilt sometime during that process. So the, the Antichrist will commit the ultimate sacrilege by setting himself up in God's temple and, and talks about an image of him in Revelation. So, you know, that could be, you look at the world we live in now, uh, it could be anything because it, it, it was hard for us to imagine not too long ago some image because Revelation talks about how the image could speak. Well, now it's like, I mean, robotics and, AI and deep fakes, and I mean, anything it could you know you could see how how any of this could happen. But so it could be a statue, it could be something else. But he's gonna set something up there, and he's gonna order everyone to worship him. Look look at uh, again Revelation chapter thirteen verses fourteen and fifteen. Be- because of the signs, he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And I don't have time to get in all of the book of Revelation and all that it says about that. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it, it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Okay, so Paul talks about this. Now he sort of comes back to the present, and he's going to talk about what's keeping this from happening right now. He talks about what's restraining it. Look at verse 6 and 7, 2 Thessalonians 2. And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. So let me just say, first of all, there are two events that are happening simultaneously in the world today. And they were also happening simultaneously in the world of the Thessalonians. The first thing is, he says, is the secret power of lawlessness is at work. Although it may not be clearly seen for what it is. The, the, the work that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will do is already going on. This is what we talked about, the spirit of Antichrist. This opposition to Christ, it's already going on. <clears throat> and, but, but when he talks about the secret work, secret, remember, <clears throat> in the Bible, it doesn't it's not referring to something that's not supposed to be told. You know, like we say, I've got a secret. That means you're not supposed to tell the secret. That's not what secret means in the Bible. It's a word that literally means hidden or behind the scenes, but it's something that God is going to reveal. That's what it means. It's also the same thing you read it in other translations. It'll call it a mystery, but that's what it means. And so the secret lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is just the hidden, subtle underlying force from which all sin springs, because sin is lawlessness. It is rejecting the law of God, rejecting his person, rejecting him. So the first thing is, secret power of lawlessness is at work, and it is working in our world today. But at the same time, that, that law, that, that secret power of lawlessness, that's the enemy working, trying to oppose Christ, trying to destroy the church, trying to overthrow the, the kingdom of God. But at the same time, as that power is trying to advance evil. E- even though the, 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 there's this power working, there is one who is restraining it. That's what he says is going on here. You know, civilization, as bad as it is, still has a modicum of, of decency. And, you know, I mean, that's why we have law enforcement, that's why we have law, that's why people are outraged at different things that happen, you know, especially when children are abused and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and and although we are horrified by criminal acts, the truth is the world has yet to see the real horror of complete lawlessness. Because that will happen when the one who is now holding it back is taken out of the way, is what Paul says. So then, there's the there that leads us to the real question: Who holds back the man of lawlessness? Now here's here's again here's this is one of those moments where we're at a disadvantage because the way Paul writes, the Thessalonians knew who is who that he was talking about. He's saying you know that that there's one holding back the, this this secret power of lawlessness, and so we know that the Thessalonians knew. So he referred to it, but he didn't repeat it. I, I, if you're like me, I wish he would have repeated it, so we would know exactly what he was talking about. And commentators have considered. Uh, speculated on this, they've considered p- multiple possibilities, but really three main possibilities for the identity of this restrainer, and really only two of them make any sense. The first one, there are some commentators that say that it's government and law. Well, th- that, that does help restrain lawlessness, but but th- that's, that doesn't make any sense in the context here. The second one is it's the, the ministry and activity of the church and the effects of the preaching of the gospel. Okay, I could you could see that that as preaching the gospel that works against the, the forces of evil. And then the third is very should be pretty obvious, it's the Holy Spirit. So, now I'm not going to tell you this is definitive but this is, you know, Daveology. Well, okay, it's not necessarily theology, but this is Daveology, but this is what I believe. I believe it's really kind of a combination of the latter two. Because I believe the Holy Spirit restrains the evil one. But what is the conduit of the Holy Spirit in the world today? The church. The church. And so taking the one being taken out of the way, it could be, the church, the rapture of the church, the church being pulled out. And, and it's and it's not that the Holy Spirit is not there anymore. That's that's the problem with just saying it's the Holy Spirit because the scripture seems to indicate that he'll be removed. Well, we know the Holy Spirit is still going to be here. We, we know that because there are going to be those after the rapture in the, in the tribulation that will get saved. You can't get saved without the presence of the Holy Spirit. So he'll be there. Uh, but, but I believe that the Holy Spirit restrains the evil one through the church in our presence. This, this is what I think this is what Jesus is talking about. We are, the church is a preserving agent used by the Holy Spirit today. What did Jesus say? He said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, what is one of the main uses of salt, especially in the first century? Preservation. That's, they would salt their meat to preserve the meat. And so, uh, the, 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 Holy Spirit, as I said, will still be present during the tribulation. Otherwise, nobody could get saved. But we know that there are some who do get saved, which, by the way, there seems to be a good indication that if you get saved in the, in, during the tribulation, there's a very high likelihood that you're gonna be, you're gonna be martyred. You're gonna be killed for it. Uh, but, uh, so we know the Holy Spirit will be there. But, If the church is taken out of the way, the number of believers in the world will be much less, far fewer. And therefore, they'll have less capability of that preserving quality of salt. So, But the truth is the Bible is not clear on the identity of the restrainer. All we know for sure is that he will not restrain forever. The, and the, but then in that moment, the man of, law, man of lawlessness will be revealed and will do his evil work as described in verses 3 and 4. Now, the, the next question I think that, that we need to ask is not just who is this, but who is the restrainer, but also why will God allow this evil man to act with such unrestrained wickedness? Why would God allow this? Well, I think, first of all, it's to show people and to show nations their own sinfulness, and to show them the, the, by bitter experience, the true alternative to the lordship of Christ. People totally without God are really not much more than vicious animals. Lawlessness it, 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 to a certain extent is is already going on, but the but the man of lawlessness has not yet come. And he will, will be revealed, as Paul said, at the proper time, in God's time. That's why the Holy Spirit in the church, he's through the church is restraining evil because it's not the right time yet. But when he says now, that's when, that's when evil will be given full reign, full, full, uh, reign in the world. But, but God has allowed people to make their choice. And then what's happening here is he will then allow the natural consequences of those decisions to reign upon their lives. And, and listen, natural consequences of sin, it's not just the suffering that sin brings, but the number one natural consequence of sin is judgment. That's the number one consequence of sin is that I will face judgment of God. If I, bear, if I continue to bear my sin, if I don't receive forgiveness and, and I'm not cleansed from that sin. So When the man of lawlessness is revealed, what's what's happened is that at that point in time, people have already made their choice to live life without God. I think I think of it kind of like this. You remember in the Old Testament when Noah was building the ark and then and the Bible talks about how he preached and and tried to get the world to repent, but, but they rejected him. Then when the day came where the storm started, what does the Bible say about the door on the ark? Who sealed it up? God shut the door. He gave them their time. But then when the time was done, when the time was right, God said, that's it. You've had your chance. The door is now closed. And I I can't help but think that there were those who came while the waters were rising and were pounding on the door and scratching and saying, let us in, let us in, let us in. But God closed the door so Noah couldn't open it. And I think that's what we're talking about here is that is that this man of lawlessness is released because the Holy Spirit stops restraining evil in the world. And so this man is given free reign under the power of the enemy, the power of darkness. And and these people will believe him. They'll they'll adopt him. They'll follow him. But what's happened is it's not that. Because we're going to see in a few moments that the Bible says that God will send a strong delusion. And that seems like to us, we think, wow, that just doesn't seem fair. But we're missing the point is that the moment the time of salvation is already passed, God's closed the door. So what begins in uh, the, the, the tribulation during the day of the Lord that we're talking about, that is the beginning of the judgment of God. The final judgment will come when they stand before the throne. But what we're talking about here is judgment. And so they've already had their 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 opportunity, they've already made their choice to to live life without God, and then then God will respect their choice and allow them to experience the consequence of their sin, which is includes judgment. So let's look at verse eight. It goes back to the future here. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Man, I love that verse. I love that verse. After the one who restrains rampant evil is removed, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, for a period of time he will have great power, and he will act with notorious evil. And Just as the man of lawlessness will be revealed in God's timing, however, what we see here is, he will also be destroyed. This is where the hope comes in. God says to us, he says, I'm gonna to reveal to you, this is happening, this is gonna come, the man, of lawlessness is gonna come, this time of great evil is gonna come. But he said, I want you to know, he's gonna be destroyed. There will be an end to this man's evil. God is in control, he reigns and victory is certain. And this man, think about what he's what he said here, what Paul wrote, in spite of all the power that he will attain. And we're going we're to read in, in verses after this about the, the, the level of power that he gets to. But in spite of all the power he will attain, this man is ultimately doomed to destruction. Revelation 19, 20. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf, with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Revelation twenty ten, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the evil man will be destroyed, but not before God uses him. Although this man will be Satan's tool, God will still have everything under his control and the events will all proceed just as he planned. And in a way, uh, this man in his rebellion, in his lawlessness, serves as an instrument of of God bringing judgment on the earth. When, When the Lord Jesus returns... This is what I love. I love it. Did you you catch that part? that said, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. I love that. Because when the Lord Jesus returns, he will effortlessly destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. It's not going to be this clash of the titans. It is just going to be. That's all. That, that picture comes from Isaiah eleven four, 4, by the way, where it says he will rule against the wicked and destroy them with the breath of his mouth. The, the picture of Christ consuming this powerful man with a mere breath. One of the things that shows us is that between God and Satan, there is no real contest. You know, like in our world today, in Hollywood, they like to have these these movies where it pits good versus evil. And, you know, there'll be these supernatural things going on. And they always have this thing where it's this really pitched battle of good versus evil. And you're not sure who's going to win. And usually, you know, in the end, good barely triumphs and evil is defeated. That's just not reality. There's no contest. There's no comparison. Because no matter how powerful this evil man may become through the powers of, of, of Satan, he is no more than a flame to be blown out by the breath of the Lord. It's not going to be this great battle where they're like, oh, I'm going to wrestle you down. I will defeat you, Satan. I will defeat you, man of lawlessness. It's just like I said, it's just going to be Jesus showing up and going, and it's over it's over. A, a further picture we see, because he goes on, he, did, he says, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So it's his breath of his mouth and just him showing up. Uh, uh, listen, uh, uh, a mere uh, breath renders the Antichrist powerless. So the uh so the, the very appearance in the same way that a mere breath renders him powerless in the same way so the very appearance of Christ on the scene will ruin him let me, let me put it like this an imposter can look really really good until the person he's impersonating shows up right John describes this future appearance of Christ. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse Whose rider is called faithful and true? With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's us, by the way. The fine linen, white and clean, is talking about the righteousness of God that He has given to us out of His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations he will rule them with an iron scepter he treads the wine press of the fury of the wrath of god almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written king of kings and lord of lords and most of the world is is going to be worshiping the beast this antichrist whom they will believe has all power and authority. They have put their trust in him. They said, yes, this is the one. This guy, he really is God. Look at the power he has. But then suddenly out of heaven will ride Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, along with the armies of heaven. And Christ will appear to all the earth in all of his glory. And when they see him, the difference between the false Christ and the real Christ will be obvious. His entrance will signal the end to this man's reign of of evil and his false powers. Look at the source of of, of the Antichrist's powers. Verse 9. This is where I was talking about, he shows us the extent of his powers. You can see how Paul just sort of jumps back and forth on some of these things a little bit. Verse 9. The coming of the lawlessness will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish. Listen to this. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Okay, so the, the this first answers the questions that might have been plaguing the Thessalonians. Like, how will this man become so powerful? How will he attain such notoriety and loyalty from the masses? And the answer is that this man will be Satan's tool. And, and his coming will be in accordance with the work of Satan and, and, and will be displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil. Listen, I'm going to say this as a side note. This is not part of the study tonight. But listen, just because you see a miraculous sign does not mean it's from God. You, you, this is why it's so important not to, you know, listen, I rejoice at signs and wonders. I, I love that. I mean, if you're like me, I want to see that. But, but if that person is not proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ risen from the dead as the only way to God, then I don't care what they're doing and I don't care what signs they, they're manifesting. They are somebody to reject and run away from. So anyway, th- this man... That's coming. The Antichrist will be Satan's counterfeit for the real Christ. Look at these things. First, he will have a, a coming. He, he, he will attempt to mimic Christ in every way possible, including the way that he enters the world stage. That, like Jesus came, he's gonna have a coming. Second, he will be empowered by Satan's working. Just as Christ was filled with, by, by God's Spirit, Luke chapter four, verse one, So the Antichrist will be filled by Satan's power. And third, he will perform counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. In other words, he's trying to do everything Jesus did. But it's all going to be counterfeit. And when Paul uses the word counterfeit, he's using that to identify the real motive behind the Antichrist's miracles. His attempt to mimic Christ only goes so far. Jesus performed miracles to demonstrate his power to save. The, the Antichrist will perform miracles to accomplish his purpose to deceive. The Antichrist will, will, will merely, in, you know, listen, in the same way, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in a way, he was a reflection of the Father, right? Well, in the same way, the Antichrist will merely be a reflection of his Father, the Father of lies, just here to deceive. While Jesus did miracles for the purpose of bringing glory to God, the Antichrist would do miracles characterized by evil and deceit for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. It, it, it will be this power, this, that, that the put on display a supernatural power. Because it's, it's not human, human power. It's not godly, but it's supernatural. It will be this power that, discer- that, that deceives those who are perishing those, as Paul said, who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now, this, this verse, I want to say this. I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm going to need to hurry. But I will say this. It seems to indicate here that it's talking about, that he seems to be referring, saying that there is a possibility that those who are perishing, that they heard the gospel before the coming of the man of lawlessness. And the inference is that they had their opportunity to embrace the truth and they refused to do so. And now the door is closed with, with that said, I just want to say this, and this is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build, you know, this is part of a foundation of my theology or anything, but I think this is something to really consider. And that is that, you know, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, if Jesus is real, when the tribulation comes, I'll know it. I'll give my life to him then. Well, first of all, I'd say, If you're not willing to confess Christ now when it's easy, you're not going to be willing when it's hard. Uh, But the second thing is, is this people who who heard the gospel before the rapture of the church. Yes, it's possible that they may be saved, but it's also very possible from what I read here, that their opportunity to be saved is already gone. That their door is closed. And, and so, uh, to me, that's just, not a, that's just too risky of a chance to take. Let's, let's go on to verse 11. I need to really move quickly. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will all, they w- all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So the, the full effect of the Antichrist work will be embraced by untold uh, numbers of people who would rather believe what is false than to trust in what is true. And, and here's the thing, and this is what we have to get on this, that as devious and deceptive as the Antichrist may prove to be when he, when he is revealed on this earth, the ultimate responsibility for failing to embrace the gospel falls squarely on the shoulders of anyone who rejects the truth. As John Stott so aptly puts it, he said, behind the great deception there lay the great refusal. Because, you know, you read that and say, God will send a powerful delusion. We're like, well, that's not fair. You know, God's going to make them believe a lie. Well, the whole point is that they've already rejected the truth. And, and, and so behind the deception, there is the refusal. And, and whatever, whatever else may be said about these, those who turn away from God, they ultimately make the deliberate choice to love their own sin more than they love God. And as Paul puts it, they, they will not perish because they have not heard the truth, but they will perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. You know, I don't, have you, you probably have noticed that human beings are notoriously reluctant to take responsibility for their own actions. Nearly everybody wants to pass the buck on to somebody else, going to, even back to the Garden of Eden, you know. God says, Eve, what have you done? Well, it was this Satan. It was this the serpent here. He he did it. Goes to we talked to Adam. Adam, what have you done? Well, God, you know, wasn't me, it was this woman that you gave me. It was ultimately your fault. You you gave her to me. And, we, and we've been doing that all throughout history. We we like to pass the buck, but Paul's reminder here is that all will face the inevitable consequences for our own actions. And those who face judgment and condemnation will have no one to blame but themselves. Condemnation is the inevitable outcome of deliberate and willful disregard for and rejection of the truth of the gospel. It's inevitable. For those who persist in the path of do- disobedience, it says that God will send a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie for those who persist in willful disregard of Him and for Him by loving their sin more than Him, what He does is God simply fixes or He confirms their pathway. He confirms their choices that they've already made and sets and confirms their pathway to eternal destruction. This is very similar to, to what Romans 1 talks about when it talks about the wrath of God being poured out because, and we're not going to read it when I have time to read it. But when, when, when Paul in the book of Romans talks about the wrath of God being put on display, he, you know, he's not talking about these catastrophic, catastrophic events. We think of wrath of God like fire and brimstone and earthquakes and volcanoes and that sort of thing. But that's not what he says at all. But he said the wrath of God is poured out on, upon people who refuse to acknowledge God and refuse to live according to the truth. But the way he does it, is that he gives them over to a depraved mind to pursue evil. In other words, God simply reaches the point where he says, fine, if that's what you want, you can have it. I will give it to you. You can chase that with all your strength, but you will receive the natural consequences of your own actions. This is exactly what is what's happening here. The, The fact that God sends this delusion shows his sovereignty in this, entire, in this entire event. A- at no point will God be out of control, even when Satan unleashes his power through the Antichrist. God's sovereignty is displayed in this way in Revelation 17, 17. This is what he says, For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will mutually agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. So you see here that even in all of these events, God's still in control. He's still in charge. He's still calling the shots. And God will use the people's rebellion as a judgment against them. By their own free will, they will choose to rebel And as as condemnation on their sin, God will harden their heart in unbelief, blinding them so that they can no longer even respond to the truth. And and this is what we have to understand is it's not that that's unfair. It's that God has already given the opportunity. And now what's happening here is in that moment, the judgment of God has already begun. This is the horrible consequence of hardening hearts. We, I'm running out of time. Let, let, me, let me just close with this because this, we pretty much covered the, the gist of everything that we were going to talk about tonight. But we need to understand that even in the, these negative and these horrible things that are being prophesied, that God has a purpose that he's fulfilling, fulfilling in them. John, John, Starr, St- John Stott offers a fitting summary of this passage. When he wrote this, he said, history is not a random series of meaningless events. It is rather a succession of periods and happenings which are under the sovereign rule of God, who is the God of history. We do well to remember the three purposes that God is accomplishing in the world even through these, these kinds of events. Number one, he is building and strengthening his church. The Thessalonians' anxiety about their present circumstances resulted from their failure to remember God's promises about future events. That's why they were so worried, because they forgot what God said he was going to do. And, and in a world that's awash with everything that is false, there's so much false out there, God has provided the church with unlimited resources of, of his truth. He has given believers His future game plan. And that gives us peace. It strengthens us. And armed with the knowledge and insight of His Word, God's people can fulfill their mission with passion, with expectancy, and with hope, and with peace. Number two, second purpose. He is using both good and evil to accomplish His purposes. Don't have time to go into this, but... Think back to Joseph. With all the stuff and the evil that he went through and the evil that was done to him. God didn't waste any of that, did he? He used that to get him where he wanted, wanted him to be, where he needed him to be. And, and when the world around us appears to be caving in all around us, which, you know, you look at the news and it's, sometimes it feels that way. We need to remember that calamity is simply another means by which God accomplishes his ends that he's at work even in those things. Even when it's the flat-out work of the enemy, God says, that's all right. I'm going to use that for my glory anyway. I'm going to do something. I'm going to work in in some way that you can't see. And if God can use the vilest people to fulfill his purposes, you see that all through the Old Testament. There are times when God sent wicked kings to attack and conquer Israel because it was a judgment that he was placing upon Israel. He used very vile people to fulfill his purposes at times. And if God can do that, then we can be sure that he can also bring good out of the most troubling circumstances of our life. And the third thing, and we're close with this, and that is that God is moving history toward a final consummation. He is moving history toward the ending that he has already planned. We got to remember that. The, the, The future of this world is not in doubt, period. Evil may appear to prevail for for a season, but remember this, looks can be deceiving. God is methodically doing his work in the world, even in the worst circumstances, whether he uses the decree of an unwitting Roman emperor or the vitriol of a self-righteous Pharisee or the lawlessness of the Antichrist, we can rest confident that we do not live in a runaway world. And it feels like a runaway world, doesn't it? But we are not living in a runaway world. God's still in control. And the next time, have you ever heard anybody say, what is this world coming to? Ever heard anybody? Maybe you've asked that kind of question. And the next time you hear somebody ask the question, what is this world coming to? I want you to remember the ending of the story. Remember what God said he is going to do. And I want you to know you can look at them, look them straight in the eye and you can confidently answer, this world is coming to Jesus. That's the answer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there is, that you're working out your sovereign plan. And that, God, that we have hope knowing that, that you are in control and that even when it looks like evil is out of control and running rampant, that you're still in charge and that you knew this was going to happen and that, that you're going to even use that for your glory. And in the end, you're going to, you're going to win and it's not even going to be a close victory. This is not going to overtime, God, but you're going to defeat the, the powers of darkness by the breath of your mouth. And by the splendor of your coming and lord we we we're excited about that and we're and i pray lord god that you would help us to realize that we have such a great responsibility now before the day of the lord before the time of judgment that we need to get as many people prepared by the gospel as possible lord i just pray i know every one of us in this in this room and those watching on the live stream we have people that we love people in our family friends who are lost, who are in rebellion towards God. And I pray, God, that in Jesus' name, that you would deal with their hearts, that you would you would break their rebellion, that God, you would open their eyes, that you would you would take the blinders off of their eyes and help them to see and bring them to a place of surrender. Make them ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.